You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village. Uh, I don't get to do this all the time, but every now and then, so uh, you're a lucky day. Mine too. Um, so uh, in the fall of, uh, of 1996, I have very vivid memories of walking into uh, Sears uh, as an 11-year-old kid um, and, and staring up at this like tall, futuristic-looking kiosk that had uh, Nintendo 64 this weird controller, uh, and being able to, to move Mario and in three dimensions, swimming and jumping and running around, and it just blew my mind, and I thought, like, man, the world will never be the same. Uh, I, I pined for one for Christmas that year, like, I really, really wanted a Nintendo 64. My parents, like, made it pretty clear that, like, I was not going to get a Nintendo 64. Um, they were very nonchalant about, like, no, it, it just ain't happening, um, so I was like, Fine. Hopefully one of my friends gets one, right? And I get to go over and like mooch off them uh, at some point. And so anyways, a uh, couple months pass. Christmas Eve shows up. My, my parents and I, we always did like a little private like gift exchange on Christmas Eve before we had family uh, come over. And they gave me uh, this, this giant box, like huge box. And I was like, what the heck is this? Uh, had my name on it. I was like, can't be for me. It was for me. Uh, start opening it. And, uh, and I realized there, there's another box inside the box, but on top of the, the second box are uh, Nintendo Power magazines. Um, That's old school uh, stuff. Now I think it's a podcast or something. Um, but but there were magazine there were magazines. Uh, I was like, oh, that's that's nice, that's cool, or whatever. Uh, open up the next layer of boxes. It was like a Nintendo sixty four controller. And I was like, okay, that's really weird. Uh, I don't know why they would be getting me one of these. Uh, open up the the next package and it's like games it's like cruising usa and, and mario 64 and i'm like okay this is here's i'm this is just me because i'm not getting a nintendo 64 for christmas why would they be do my parents not know that i need the actual thing to play the games and and i open up the the final box uh the smallest box and it was in fact a nintendo 64 um and i was just flabbergasted i was dumbfounded it was the the greatest christmas present as a kid that I've ever gotten, the greatest presentation uh, of a gift ever. Um, I, I just couldn't believe it. My, my parents had conditioned me to believe that I wasn't getting one. Um, and so despite all the evidence in front of me, as I was tearing box into box into box, like I, my heart was stubborn. I, I just could not understand that, in fact, I was actually getting a Nintendo 64, even though everybody looking, if someone was watching what was happening, it would be very obvious what was about to happen, right? It just seemed like it was too good to be true. I'm sure I'm not the only kid who's been uh, duped in the, in the best of ways by their parents, surprised in good ways, um, but I also know that some of us have been duped in the worst of ways, not, not just by parents, by people in general, by, by friends, family, uh, maybe even the church, right? And, and while sin conditions every heart right out of the gate to be stubborn uh, to, to what is both true uh, and good, both sin and suffering can make our hearts even more stubborn and hard towards really seeing what should be plain uh, and clear and obvious to us about what really is good and true, even when it's God himself trying to, to give us a good gift, trying to deliver us good news or to lead us towards what is good for us. So 
So what happens? What does God do when sin and suffering, when they, when they pile on, and the good news seems too good to be true, to the point of, of even refusing to listen to it? That's what we're going to explore this day um, through Exodus chapter 6. And our, our main idea today is that God overcomes stubborn hearts by giving us a subversive faith in his promises. That's our, our main idea today. Um, we're going to start by reading Exodus 6, 1 together. This is the very first verse uh, in the chapter. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And, and this is going to introduce our first point, that God's people will be driven out of slavery by his promises. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen The Godfather Part 2 uh, at all, but um, the, the movie, it kind of focuses on uh, Michael Corleone. Uh, he's the, the head of the family, expanding uh, the family business in the sequel, and he's, he needs gaming licenses uh, at one point in the movie to, to, in order to expand what he's trying to do. And so he calls on the senator uh, to, to come and, and get him what he needs, and so the senator shows up in his office, and uh, the senator hates uh, Michael. He, he does not like Mikey at all. He hates uh, everything him and his family stand for and all that they do, um, but he's willing to do business. But he's going to overcharge him in order to do that. He wants to put the squeeze on uh, the Corleone family and what they're doing. So he's going to overcharge them a ton for all these licenses. So they, they go back and forth. They banter a bunch. And the senator uh, finally says this. He says, okay, some people need to play little games. You play yours. Let's just say that you'll pay me because it's in your interest to pay me. But I want your answer and the money by noon tomorrow. Michael, after sitting there for like a few seconds just in, in silence, he says, Senator, you can have my answer now if you'd like. My offer is this, nothing. Not even the $20,000 for the, the gaming license, which I would appreciate if you would put up personally. In other words, not only are you going to give me what I want for the, the price that I want, but you're going to be the one that pays for it. And so last week we saw Moses and Aaron, they approached Pharaoh uh, for the first time and said, Hey, like our God, Yahweh, he said, let my people go uh, and worship me in the mountain. And Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh that, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I, I have no idea who he is. I don't know him. Pharaoh tries to put the squeeze on God uh, and on the Israelites by, by giving them the, the same quotas of work that they've had to do all along, and yet by taking away some of their supplies. So they, he made the work harder for them. So he was trying to put the squeeze on on God and his people, and this sends the people into despair, and they get angry with Moses, they get angry with Aaron, and then Moses uh, sends him into a fit with God, and that's where we kind of left off at the end of uh, the last chapter last week. And so in verse 1 here of chapter 6, we see God respond in his Al Pacino voice. I'm not going to haggle with Pharaoh. My offer is this, nothing. Pharaoh's going to give me what he wants. My people free of charge, and he's going to give them to me himself on his dime. I'm not going to compensate Pharaoh, right, for the, the uh, lost free labor that, that he's not going to have anymore. In fact, when he finally sends them away, they're going to hand over gold and silver and all kinds of stuff. Uh, he talked about that back in chapter 3. So, just to make an observation here, th this would be quite a feat to accomplish 
Pharaoh is the most powerful person on the planet. He is wealthy, he is rich, he has all kinds of military power, he is seen as a god. There is no one who could oppose him. And he seems to have quite the stubborn heart as well. When, when presented with the name of God and representatives of God and the commands of God, he blows God off as if he doesn't matter. And he actually spites him by oppressing his people even more. So in order for God to get Pharaoh to drive out the Israelites of his own accord, not unwillingly, but with a, a strong hand, with, with all of his might, it means that God is going to have, to have to overcome the stubborn heart of Pharaoh himself one way or another. And, and Pharaoh can, can do that the easy way. Or he can do it the hard way. And as many of us know, spoiler alert, like he, he chooses the hard way, right? And God knows this. So when he says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, God means that he's going to be the one putting the squeeze on Pharaoh, not the other way around. And, and whatever he does will break Pharaoh's will and make him want to give up God's people. And, and we're going to see that soon, ten plagues and, and all of that stuff. Have that to look forward to. It's epic. Uh, they should make a movie about it. Um, so here's the nugget. Um, here's the nugget. God, God saves his people by overcoming stubborn hearts. And, and in this case, right now, it's Pharaoh's. That's what he's talking about. And while that's bad news for Pharaoh, right, that's really good news for Israel, for his people. And it's this good news and more that God wants to remind Moses and his people of in their present dismay. So God goes on to say this. This is Exodus 1, 2 through 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I didn't make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This paragraph is the, uh, the Nintendo 64. This is the Nintendo 64. It's, it's all the things in the big box. It's one good thing after another, after another, that make the whole package, right, the best news yet that could be delivered to, uh, to Israel. Good news of deliverance and, and salvation. If good news is proclaimed anywhere, in, in the book of Exodus, it's here, right? We see it, like we see it dramatized in a million different ways throughout this book in beautiful, glorious, splendid ways, but we hear it spoken most explicitly and clearly here. There are uh, uh, seven I wills or I shalls in, in this paragraph, and uh, Tony Merida, he's a pastor and author, some of us have his commentary for this. He groups uh, these I shalls or I wills into five gospel words that we see, uh, and they'll be up on the screen for you. The first one is liberation, uh, just from slavery. They could be the, uh, freed from slavery. Redemption, they get to be purchased and protected by God. They are his. Adoption, they're made part of his family, right, as heirs. And inheritance, they, they get to enjoy, and, and they're given the promises of God as well. And judgment, which again is bad news for uh, God's enemies, but it's really good news for for his people. 
These are, these are all part of God's plan, uh, not merely to free his people from slavery in Egypt, but to make them his own, to, to give them a new home and a new family and a new protection. God's good news isn't just about delivering them from what's bad, but delivering them to what is good. But what God wants Moses to take away from this paragraph, um, it's not just merely that this good news exists, that it's just out there in the universe and it's floating until it decides to, to come down at some point in time. It's not just this like big gift wrap box that's just sitting in the room with maybe all kinds of cool stuff in it. Right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a Christmas party or birthday party with kids who, like, they see their gift, right? They see the gift under the tree, or they know that's their, their it, it's their birthday party, so they know everyone's bringing gifts just for them, and to make them sit there and wait to open stuff, or they have it in their hand, and they're waiting for the gift exchange to ha- have it be their turn, and they're, like, just, they're freaking out. It's torture for them, right? So this anticipation quickly uh, moves into despair, right, by just having to wait so long to tear into it. God wants Moses and Israel to know that this good news is theirs today and that they get to, to tear into it and soon enjoy it in all of its fullness. Which, to be honest, is, is probably uh, maybe difficult for them to believe. They, they probably don't think it's going to happen uh, anytime soon. Not just because anticipation has turned to despair, but because literal torture and, and oppression has befallen them. Things have gotten worse for them since God first brought good news. Since God first spoke that news to Pharaoh, to their enemies, they've not gotten better. And so freedom probably only seems even further away from them. Some of us might describe our own life in that way, that since we've been following Jesus or since we've believed and and tried to live it out, that things haven't gotten easier for us, but, but it's actually gotten more difficult and harder. And this is where God steps in and, and frames all of this, frames this news in such a way to combat a lie that, that they and that we are prone to believe. Um, that, that they have suddenly, somehow, because of their circumstances, is looking around at what's going on, that they've become unhitched from God's promises. Or at the very least, that God has, has pushed pause and, and progress towards that freedom, towards tearing open that gift, right? That giant present and seeing what's inside, uh, that that has stalled. In some way, they look back at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, just like we might look back at aunts and uncles or grandparents or people that we know in our families that uh, maybe have, have long gone or they had they had some unique relationship with the Lord. There was something about them that made them special that that gave them some opportunity to interact with the Lord in some special way, uh, and that God's promises are somehow stuck there, stuck in the past, clinging to people long gone or, or generations prior. God has skipped a generation. He skipped a branch of the family tree or a neighborhood or, uh, or maybe like just us in favor of, of another. And our evidence for that is, is what we think we are plainly seeing in front of us when we survey our circumstances and how things seem to have gone in our life, whether or not that's actually true. So God makes it clear that he is, in fact, on the move. Uh, there's, there's movement in this paragraph that, that mirrors the movement of God uh, among God's people right here in right now, uh, from the past and into the present towards the future, so that his people will know that they will very, very soon be driven out of slavery by his promises. 
We're going to mash some of these things together from this paragraph. Uh, He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That's in the past, right? But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, I I did not make myself known to them. So so Moses, uh, Moses, tell them again my name. Tell them, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. Not just Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but you. I also established my covenant with them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they they lived as sojourners. That's in the past. Um, I will bring you, Israel, Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Right? That's in the past. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of justice. God's promises aren't skipping a generation here. They're not stuck in the past anyway. God's promises are theirs today. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that big box, it did have their name on it. Had their name on it. And they each got to open a layer to see what's inside. They got to know him as God Almighty. They got to sojourn in a land that would one day belong to their family. Covenants made in the future, not knowing maybe what else to expect. The next uh, box that was torn open also had like Moses and Aaron's name on it and the Israelites' name on it. And they get to unwrap uh, the next layer, knowing that, that God is Yahweh. The great I am, deliverance from slavery, entrance into an ownership of the promised land, and maybe not knowing what's going to happen after that. And that big box had the names of even more future generations on it, too, who would unwrap more and more and more from Egypt to the promised land, to, to Babylon, and to back, uh, back there again, deeper and deeper, box after box, until one day a new family and, and some shepherds unwrap the best present in the smallest package which was a, a baby in a manger in Bethlehem who would go on to live a, a perfectly pleasing life to God and, and give us credit for every single second of it, who would never sin a day in his life, but who took each sin, all guilt, every ounce of shame to die under God's judgment that, that we deserved so that we don't have to, who would leave behind an empty tomb because death could not hold him and who would ascend to reign at God's right hand and send the Holy Spirit to a group of people in an upper room in Jerusalem so that, uh, that another tiny group uh, of people might be sent out to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth all the way to another tiny group of people who gather not in an upper room but in, in the basement of a former department store in a small city an ocean away. Thousands of years later, where the village church gathers weekly like we're doing right now, just so that we might remember that wherever we find ourselves, whatever our current circumstances are, that, that no, in fact, we have not been passed over by God's promises. And yes, freedom is ours. Freedom not from the power of Pharaoh. We don't have one of those today. But, but from the power of sin and Satan and death. Freedom that, that we can unwrap and enjoy today. Here are those promises, those blessings that, that we all get to enjoy in Christ today if your faith is in Jesus. This is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I want you to pick up on similarities uh, that, that, are, that you hear about here that were just in Exodus that we just read. All right, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has lavished or he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You hear some similarities in those two chapters, in those two paragraphs? All of these things are ours not because of the faith that God has in you or in the circumstances around you, but by any amount of faith that you might place in only one who can overcome the stubborn hearts of both Pharaoh and Satan. How could anyone, after hearing that stuff, how could anyone, especially those who are downcast, despairing, oppressed, not hear that and rejoice? How, how could they not hear that and rejoice? Next verse, Exodus 6, 9. Moses spoke thus, uh, this good news, to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. While God's people will be driven out of slavery by his promises, that's for sure, there are times when, and this is the second point, that belief in God's promises can be driven out of his people by slavery. Sometimes the good news seems too good to be true. That doesn't mean it's not true. It it just means that it seems too good to be true, to to the point that we can't believe that it is anymore. Remember, these are the same people who just uh, a couple of chapters ago, if you were here for us in chapter 4, that when they first received news that God was showing up and that God was coming, uh, to save them, that they had heard their cries and, uh, and that he was going to set them free. They worshipped him, right? They worshipped before God had even lifted a finger, before they had ever talked to Pharaoh, before he'd ever been confronted. In the midst of their slavery, they believed and they rejoiced. They received the gift, uh, saw their name on it, and couldn't wait to, to open it before giving thanks to God. And now they can't even listen to what Moses had to say. What changed? God's promise of freedom uh, took them high. And, and a Pharaoh's harsher burdens brought them low. And, and these burdens, this slavery, wasn't purely physical. It was their spirits and, and not just their backs that were broken, right? Charles Spurgeon, uh, the, the prince of, of preachers, uh, himself struggled with uh, spiritual slavery, with, with depression and with all sorts of uh, things. And he writes this about Exodus 6. He said, Among all the reasons I ever heard, the one with which I have the most sympathy is that some cannot receive Christ because they are so full of anguish and are so crushed in spirit that they cannot find strength of mind enough to entertain a hope by, that by any possibility salvation can come to them. I have felt the same 
myself. I do remember when in my anguish I could not believe even Jesus himself. Therefore, as one who has worn the chains, I speak to those who were still in chains. I know the, the clanking of those chains. I know what it is to feel the damp of the stone walls and to fear that there is no coming out of prison. I know and have felt the despair that even when the emancipator turned the great key in the lock and set the door wide open, yet still my heart had made for itself a dire cage. Ah, there is no prison so awful as that of a crushed spirit. Many of us in this room know those chains too. I know those chains too. Isolation, anxiety attacks, thoughts of self-harm, just wanting to to cut ties and start over. I know those chains, and not just as a, a distant memory from the past before I was a believer, but as a Christian, and as a dad, and as a husband, and as a pastor. Those are very real things and very recent things. Appropriately, uh, chapters 5 and 6 of Exodus were cathartic for me uh, a bit last year, um, which is weird that I get to preach on this chapter, largely because I identified, and and this is going to sound wildly arrogant, okay? Uh, I identified with Moses, um, but in his confusion, uh, as his faithfulness seemed to be leading to things unraveling around him. Like he was doing everything right and everything was going wrong around him, making things harder for people. Um, And then, because of this, uh, this is Exodus 6, 10 through 12. So the, the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips. In other words, God, God's like, hey, uh, sorry that didn't go well with your hometown audience, but, but now it's time to go off to the toughest crowd you will ever stand in front of. Like, his... His sworn enemy and the most powerful person on the planet, good luck. To be fair, uh, to Moses, that probably just feels like a trap, <laughs> like a, a setup where there's no way that he can win. Um, Moses believes he's lacking something spiritual about him or the way that he speaks. This is no longer the, the same kind of complaint that we've heard in the past. This isn't a physical impairment of speech or an impediment uh, that, that he's complaining about to God. This is a spiritual thing, some moral flaw or lack of some divine oomph that, that's keeping him from being effective. And, and that's why he uses the term uncircumcised lips, not just slow of speech or, or ineloquent. And, and he has interpreted that from his past experiences, That's what he has learned from what's happened so far. So Moses is thinking God is just shoving him along to the next stop on this never-ending tour of of just disappointment uh, and failure and greater hardship for him and his people. And that's just what he has to do because God said so. (laughs) And, And so he better keep his chin up and smile while he's doing the very thing he feels least able to do. And I used to think, poor Moses, that that seems really tough a really rough go and and i'd insert myself in moses place and it was very cathartic and it felt good to see what maybe i was feeling maybe being felt by somebody else like moses and we were in the same boat hey, I, have, I have a place in these pages uh where someone's like me um and, and while i enjoyed sharing the sympathy of moses uh after a time i realized that that my frequent visits with him um in this particular chapter while while misery loves company um wasn't moving me it wasn't moving me forward. It was, it was meeting me where I was, or, or where I thought that I was, but it wasn't taking me anywhere. And that's because I failed to connect that, that Moses, he was an Israelite too. He was having a hard time listening to what the Lord was saying too. 
And that's because his spirit was broken too. He, he thought of himself as uncircumcised. He, he's not immune to hurt and disappointment and personal suffering or the suffering of his people, nor, nor should he be. But I thought he should be. We all think those guys in the Old Testament, they ought to be immune to all these things, right? Impervious, tough, like nothing bugs them. And I think, I think that, and maybe many of us think that too, because we think that's how we should be. At least that's how I think I should be sometimes. But when I let the text lead, it was pretty clear that, that Moses had the same symptoms of the Israelites because he had the same root cause. And, and when my diagnosis of, of Moses changed, so did Scripture's diagnosis of me. And, and that was just unbelief. Unbelief, a stubborn heart, a spiritual slavery that, that led to a, a broken spirit that led to an inability for me to even really listen to what God had to say uh, about me or my value or my work or my circumstances, let alone what he had to say about himself, which is the most important thing, the most important thing to hear. God literally opens and closes his good news that he delivers to his people over and over again with, I am the Lord. Good news, I am the Lord. It's the most important thing that we can hear. The slavery that's in view in Exodus 6 isn't merely physical or social or economic. It is spiritual. Right? It, it's mental, emotional stuff. It's, it's wrong lessons learned from past experiences or, or from voices either from within us uh, or our own heads or from without. Speaking into our ears, discipling us to believe lies about ourselves, about our destinies, and most important, about our God. He is not the one placing burden upon burden on us, right? Trapping us, setting us up, skipping over us, or, or being stuck in the past. But when we're in those dire cages that Spurgeon talked about, it's really easy to believe that the good news of God's gift is just not for you. But it's not even really good news anymore. Spurgeon went on to say this about Exodus 6. He said, I do not doubt that they muttered to themselves, this Moses is a mad philosopher who has grand mouthfuls of words, but, but what are words to us? A bit of fish out of the Nile or a cucumber from the irrigated fields would be much better than talking to us about a covenant. And yet, in the covenant of grace lies the charter of the poor and needy. At any rate, if we come under that covenant, it cannot be worse with us than it is now. One may seem now to be under a covenant of bondage and of sorrow, and any change will be for the better. If there be another covenant, a covenant of grace and love and peace and everlasting out until we discover whether we have a part in it. We must listen diligently to the voice of the gospel so that we may live. So for those of you who struggle, who find yourselves in places like that, maybe it's just a momentary um, worry or seasonal struggle or maybe you find yourself snared in, in unrepentant sin or, or unconfessed, unknown, unseen corners of your heart or your life or, or maybe you struggle with like uh, clinical depression or anxiety, insecurity, any number of things that, that bind you up with invisible chains. We may not have fish or cucumbers to offer but, but there is room for you. There is there's a place for you. You have a part in God's promises. Not, not only is there room for you in the pages of, of, of the scriptures, not only is there room for you among God's people or, or the people of the village church in particular, but there's room for you to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how to leave the chains that God has broken off, how, how to walk through the cell door that he unlocked, how to accept love and grace and help even when you find yourself 
putting them back on again or going back inside. Because in Christ, we are not under a covenant of bondage and sorrow, be it from Pharaoh or be it from, from Satan himself, but we are under a covenant of grace and love and peace and the everlasting faithfulness of the great I am. The gift is good and the gift is for you because he is for you. So much so that he not only meets you where you are, but he wants to move you forward closer to him, closer to freedom, and, and, and we will all experience that someday in full when Jesus returns to set all things right. But in the meantime, while belief in God's promises can be driven out of his people by spiritual slavery, and this is the third point, slavery is driven out of God's people by subversive faith in his promises. The Exodus is a story of God doing many things. And one of them is overcoming stubborn hearts. All of us have one. Um, and that can look like Pharaoh and, and open sinful rebellion and mockery of the Lord and his people. It can also look like an oppressed and suffering Israel just stiff-arming the Lord when he comes near to offer help or good news. Uh, and it can also look like a confused and disillusioned Moses uh, losing faith in the Lord's plans because he believes more in his own ability uh, to mess up God's plans than for God's ability to to carry it out. All three of those responses, both from, from the oppressor and the oppressed, come from a heart that is stubborn against the pretty plain, clear, obvious words of the Lord. Our natural hearts, both in our sin and in our suffering, can harden against what God has to say to us, no matter how good it is or how good he is or how bad the alternatives are. We all have hearts of stone. That's what Ezekiel tells us. And through Exodus we're going to see more of, of Pharaoh's stubborn heart and how it gets harder and how God ultimately breaks him down, just like Michael Corleone. Uh, he overcomes his heart by, by putting the squeeze on him, right? Uh, we're going to see more of, of Israel's seemingly never-ending stubborn heart and how God seeks to overcome righteous anger and discipline. And while in only uh, six chapters, it feels like we've heard Moses complain about 23 times, right, to the Lord about his speech or about something else, after today, we don't see Moses' stubborn heart show up in that way again. No more talk of being slow of speech. No more talk of being ineloquent. No more talk of having uncircumcised lips. And this is how God overcomes Moses' stubborn heart. This is 6.13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That's it. In other words, just go do it. And you know what? They, they did. They, they do that. We see that next week. And they do it with, with no complaints. Now, now, that response might seem to fly in the face of how we would expect God to overcome Moses, uh, his heart, or, or of how we would go about dealing with Moses. It, it doesn't, doesn't seem very God-centered, or it's not a very gospel-centered response, Right? Just tell someone to go do it. That seems pretty moralistic and, and legalistic, right? Very religious in some sense. Uh, that, that's not concerned with the heart, not concerned with motives, with true belief, but, but it, it simply wants begrudging obedience, right? Just do what I said, no matter what. That this is sometimes what a radically God-centered and gospel-centered response looks like. Just go do it. Um, I went climbing last week. Uh, which brings my average of going climbing to uh, about once every 17 and a half years. Um, 
and I'm, I'm genuinely, like, I'm afraid of heights. I'm not keen on being high. Something that's problematic when you're climbing and purposefully trying to defy gravity. Um, so, uh, man, after three attempts, I finally got all the way up to the top on, like, the, the easiest route or whatever. And, and now I, I knew that the way to get down, you're attached to a belay rope, uh, you just have to jump, right? You get all the way to the, the top, and you just have to let go and jump, kick off. I, I watched other people do it. I watched children do it, uh, right? <laughs> Um, I knew I'd probably 100% be fine. It would probably catch me. Um, what I needed to do was incredibly plain and clear and obvious, right? There really was no other way to get down. Um, but, but man, like, there was nothing in my bones that said, ah, oh, yes, now's the time to let go and let gravity win, right? But nothing about that at all because I'd literally been fighting gravity for about 10 minutes trying to get up the stupid thing. So Rick and Aaron were at the bottom uh, just saying, like, you just got to do it, man. You just got to let go and go. So against every survival instinct in my body, I let go, I kicked off, and just knew uh, it was going to be horrifying for about two seconds until, man, I realized, hey, I'm going to be okay. And, and that's what happened. And my feet hit the ground, and I lived to tell a tale, right? And I'm right here. And I'll be better, all the better and more prepared to do it next time, 17 and a half years, right? <laughs> when we hear and know the, the plain, explicit, obvious words of the Lord, whether it's God talking to Moses audibly or whether it's us reading scripture or being prompted by the Spirit to do something, whatever God's calling us to do, just, it might just scream against every instinct of our body, right? Like Moses, even, when even though we know it's right, we know that he's right, but it feels so counterintuitive and it cuts against the grain of how we would rather do things, whether that's just out of fear or sheer disbelief or whatever. Sometimes the most God-centered and gospel-centered response looks like, just go do it. Because at some point, the only way to really trust that, that auto belay, that rope that I'm attached to, is literally just to, to let it, to let go and to let it hold me. And at some point, the only way to really trust the Lord with our, uh, to be God over our stubborn hearts, to keep us from falling and to catch us when we do, is to let him. Just go do it is a call to turn our whole selves towards God, sometimes in spite of ourselves, and to put ourselves in a position where the only thing that we can hope in is God himself. Trust falls, right, when you like do this and then you careen over the edge of something and just pray to God that someone catches you, right? You've done that before, trust falls camp or something like that, or some like business exercise. Uh, they're not called trust falls because you already have full trust, right? It, hopefully you have some, right? But they are trust building exercises because I don't care who you are. If you do that and you're not thinking, what if those people don't catch me? I don't know that I trust that person. What happens if they try to catch me, but they're not strong enough? You're not thinking those things like there's something wrong with you. Um, but, but once you do it, once you act on whatever amount of trust you do have in those people below you and they catch you, your trust in them increases. It's a trust-building exercise. Obedience to the Lord and trusting the Lord is in itself a trust-building exercise in the same exact way. Obedience is an act of, of subversive faith. Not just faith, but subversive faith faith in this way. It's a rebellious faith, not against God, but against all of the lies and the fears and the idols and sin and worldly intuition that have and that would love to continue discipling us away from what's true in any other direction. And sometimes that's just keeping you right where you are. For Moses, God was calling him to subvert not just the external power of Pharaoh, 
um, but, but to subvert the internal power that this lie of having uncircumcised lips had over God's ability to use him. And Moses' faith was not misplaced. Every, every unnatural act of obedience, external or internal, is a supernatural subversion against the powers of sin and Satan. It is an act of worship, and that could be public, and that could be private in ordinary moments of your day. And it's an opportunity for you to not just know that God is faithful in your head, but to experience his faithfulness in a new way that leads to freedom, right? Externally, when God is calling you to lead an entire nation out of bondage, right, and into a new land, and and what we see today internally from spiritual slavery, like letting a a speech impediment or some spiritual handicap keep you from, from your words being used by the Lord. For some of us, that subversive act of faith is just getting out of bed in the morning, to be honest. For some of us, that's taking steps to repent of unrepentant sin or having that difficult conversation you know that you need to have but you just keep putting off. Whatever it is, there's freedom and there's a stronger faith to be found on the other side of those things. And that's just a taste of it. Slavery is driven out of God's people by subversive faith in his promises. This is what Ezekiel uh, says about our hearts of stone. This is uh, Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. He said, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Sounds familiar, huh? For, for those of us in Christ this morning, God has overcome our stubborn hearts by giving us new ones. And those hearts are fighting against a body that's used to slavery, um, but, but they want to beat for the Lord. And while our spirits may be crushed, God has put his spirit in us for the very purpose of helping us overcome that stubbornness that's still there. To live against the grain of our flesh, against the, the fam- familiarity of chains, against what your sin and the scars of suffering have made you grow accustomed to. To live by a subversive faith against every Pharaoh and every fear, no matter how big or how little so that you might experience in some way a taste of his freedom. And so while God's response to Moses here might feel cold or impossible to some of you, remember this, that when the dire cage feels like home and the chains fit perfectly around your wrists, it can feel foreign to walk in freedom and familiar to live as a spiritual slave. And so would it not be an even greater tragedy if, in Spurgeon's words, The emancipator who turned the great key in the lock and set the door wide open was simply content with us staying there. And we do all this not under a covenant of bondage and sorrow with the threat of being cast out if we mess up, but under a covenant of grace and love and peace and everlasting faithfulness with the promise that we are his people and that he is our God and we will one day dwell with him forever because he is moving things forward. God overcomes stubborn hearts by giving us a subversive faith in his promises. The last part of this chapter, there's a genealogy that I wanted to read through that I will, I will not read through uh, today. Um, 
I'm skipping it, but I don't want you to skip it. it I know genealogies are, are never fun in your brains, but I promise you there's cool stuff to be found in this one. Uh, it's, it's weird that it's there. It's a strange construction. And while my nerd brain wanted to go into a lot of things, um, I want you to note this one thing, that, that the genealogy here not only gives us the origins of Moses and Aaron, but it tells us of those who come after. Right here. Some of whom we don't see for two more books. Aaron's grandson. God's promises won't be stuck in the past. And then the chapter closes this way. I think it says 26 through 30. These are, are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. And the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Just recaps what just happened. How plain and clear and obvious it is for those who are writing Exodus and for us reading it now to look back and say, can you believe that this Moses, that this Aaron, that these guys doubted? Right? I mean, they've made it out of Egypt. God simply did what he said he was going to do. That's a pretty obvious thing, right? Right? It's so obvious that God was on the move, moving things forward. Clearly, God's promises haven't skipped this generation because he's done so much. But we all know that, that if you're Moses in that moment, it's not that easy. The big picture, the, the big vision seems a million miles away and impossible to reach. And while it's not too good to be true, it seems like it is too good to be true sometimes. And, and I know that some of you feel that way about the freedom that God wants for you. So if you find yourself there today, my encouragement is, is maybe just to ask, how is God wanting me to trust him today? What's one thing he, he's wanting me to trust him with today? What's one subversive act of faith that I can do today? And if you're feeling dangerous, if you want to kick off the wall and let go, do the most subversive thing you can do and place your life in his hands. God saves stubborn hearts and he overcomes stubborn hearts by giving us a subversive faith in his promises.